Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 116, Venice in Mortal Peril, 1356 to 1400. In the last episode, we saw that Venice had elected a dolphin, John the Dolphin, or Giovanni Dolphin, as Doge. Despite his large mammal brain, he was not able to fight off the great threat of the time, the Hungary of King Louis, King Louis being a member of the Anjou family. The Hungarian troops had reached almost all the way to the lagoon and were only convinced to leave thanks to a heavy peace for Venice. Another interesting thing that occurred under the dolphin was that Venice attempted to regulate the oldest profession in the world, prostitution. The idea following St. Augustine was that prostitution was a necessary evil and should be tolerated and perhaps regulated. The idea was to concentrate the ladies into a specific area of the city that could be controlled and policed accordingly. Sounds like a good idea, right? A sort of red-light district from seven centuries ago. Well, it didn't work. Possibly out of great disappointment from his red-light district plan not working, the dolphin died in 1361, and the next two Dodges saw us through a period of some tranquility. We could mention one of the two, Marco Corna, First of all, due to the amusing name, and then because he was a bit of an anomaly. First of all, he wasn't stinking rich, but quite poor. And what was worse, he had a plebeian wife. Could you imagine that? The scandal. However, in the end, he did a decent job. The next guy along really really didn't want the job of Dodge. When he was told he had been elected, he refused. He was then asked again, and again he refused. On the third request, he was told that if he didn't accept, he would have all of his goods and wealth seized, and he would be sent into exile. At this point, he accepted. However, that was not the worst thing. The worst thing was he was forced to wear a new hat. Andrea Contarini enjoyed wearing a rather stylish hat at the time, a sort of upside-down top hat with a wider flattened bit at the top, usually in a lovely bright red colour. Those Big bullies of the oligarchy forced the poor, poor man to wear a zogia, also known as a duke's horn, a hat with a silly-looking bumpy horn at the back. It really 
does look rather silly, and you can see it in the image that accompanies this episode. Soon after the election and the forced hat change, the inhabitants of the controlled city of Trieste, possibly objecting to being ruled by a man who looked like he was wearing a hat with a willy on the back of his head, decided to rebel. They did this quite cleverly, because knowing they couldn't go it alone, they called in the help of Austria and, once again, Hungary. Venice managed to deal with Austria relatively quickly by chucking a lot of money at some mercenaries. Hungary was harder. That fox Louis of Hungary sent in a Transylvanian by the name of Stephen. That's it. Not Vlad or Istvan or Lucian or something like that, but Stephen. Now, don't get me wrong, please. I absolutely have nothing against the name Stephen. I am a huge Stephen King fan, and one of my dearest, dearest friends is called Stefano, but Stephen doesn't really strike fear into the hearts of his enemies like Vlad or Istvan. Neither did this particular Stephen, and the Venetians managed to capture him, thus forcing the Hungarians to withdraw. Meanwhile, things were getting worse and worse in the East, due in particular to the great weakness, particularly financially, of Constantinople. The emperor at the time, John V Paleologus, was deeply in debt, and a lot of it was with Venice. Rather than help the poor man out, the Venetians stuck the poor guy in debtor's prison. His son, Manuel, had to come and bail him out using the family jewels, meaning actual jewels like rubies and stuff, there was no monkey business going on here. He was released on a sort of bail for five years, but Venice wanted a guarantee. The island of Tenedo, which would have countered the Genoese ownership of Cyprus by allowing Venice to control access to the Sea of Marmara. Cyprus had been taken by Genoa under their doge Domenico Campofregaso. You may remember that the Genoese had also taken to electing doges after years of factional fighting between Ghibellines and Guelphs, these last groups supported by the Anjou. The first Genoese doge had been Simone Boccanegra in 1339. The whole system, however, was a bit different from Venice. Indeed, in Genoa, power was not concentrated in the hands of an aristocratic oligarchy, but in the mercatores, the merchant class which was made up of nobles and non-nobles alike, but who had in common their possession of loads and loads of cash. This made for a more democratic approach, yet meant greater instability. Anyway, both Genoa and Venice coveted the island of Cyprus. In 1372, the Cypriots got a new king, Peter II. It seems that during the coronation ceremony, a fight broke out between the Venetians and the Genoese over the most serious of matters. It seems that the Venetian representative 
and the Genoese representative could not agree on who was to hold the right rein of the new king's horse, which then provoked the resulting scuffle. In the end, a very smug group of Venetians saw all of the Genoese blamed for the violence and evicted from the Cypriot city of Fermagosta. The Genoese wasted no time in sending a whopping great fleet with loads of soldiers to besiege the city, which lasted only about three months. King Peter II of Cyprus would get his throne back, but Genoa would receive huge amounts of florins, as well as control of the city and its castle, thus giving them control of the island of Cyprus. Venice was not at all pleased, and that is why, as we mentioned before, they wanted the island of Tanedo to counterbalance the Genoese having control of Cyprus. Genoa, in turn, was having none of this and supported a coup to overthrow poor old John Paleologus, who ended up in prison anyway. So, would you believe it? Eventually, war broke out, again, between Venice and Genoa. Once again, both republics went hunting for allies, and Venice got Bernabò Visconti of Milan and the King of Cyprus to annoy Genoa as much as possible. Genoa also obviously tried to annoy Venice as much as possible and teamed up with the Da Carrara family who controlled Padua on the Italian mainland close to Venice and can you guess who else? Are you guessing? Have you got it? That's exactly right. Louis of Hungary was gonna have another go at Venice. Before we go there, a quick word from our sponsor. In this new war with Genoa, things started out well for Venice. In 1378, with the commander of the Venetian fleet, Vettor Pisani, winning an early victory. I usually try not to throw out the names of all the commanders, but Pisani is going to pop up again, so keep him in mind. This defeat for Genoa caused their doge Campo Fregaso to lose his throne in an uprising. His successor held the job for all of several hours before passing to Niccolò Guarco. At this point, the Venetian Admiral Pisani asked to return with his fleet to Venice, but he was refused and had to winter at the port of Pula in modern-day Croatia. When spring came along, Along also came a Genoese fleet that managed to defeat the Venetians. For his trouble, Admiral Pisani was thrown into prison. Now, standing between the Genoese fleet and Venice herself, there was nothing but open sea. Things were also going particularly badly on the land. The Da Carrara and the Hungarians had shown up on the doorstep of Venice. By September 1379, the outer areas of the Venetian mainland had been occupied and the Genoese sails had made their way into the lagoon itself and now threatened the city. 
Venice asked for a truce, but it was refused. There were tragic scenes of desperation throughout Venice, people despairing, howling and crying in the streets. They prepared for the worst, taking away the signs that marked the shallow waters, filling the canals with armed vessels and preparing the bells of the city to sound the alarm to call the citizens to arms. With the Hungarians and the Dakarara cutting off the city from the land and the Genoese blockading from the sea, food started to become scarce. Rather than start to starve to death and surrender shamefully, the population asked the authorities to attempt a last stand. The Venetians set to work as only they knew how. Taking advantage of the hesitation of the Genoese admiral, Pietro Doria, they managed to strengthen the defences and churn out 40 armed galleys in a question of days. The Senate announced that the first 30 families who would contribute to the war effort would be granted the title of nobles and any foreigners in the city who lent a hand would be granted the precious Venetian citizenship. With a surge of pride, the Venetian land forces managed to start pushing back the Hungarians and the Padawans, reclaiming some of the external territory. The citizens protested and demanded that Admiral Vettor Pisani, who had managed to defeat the Genoese the previous year before being forced to winter in a Croatian port and before being defeated himself by the Genoese, be released. Pisani was indeed released, and he came out of prison with a cunning plan. He started from the consideration that the Genoese fleet was in the lagoon and there was no kicking them out. On one hand, this was a great disadvantage and a moral blow for Venice. On the other hand, it also meant that the enemy had a limited amount of escape routes. What the Venetians had to do was to put into action the age-old plan of transforming the besiegers into the besieged. Pisani had a small flotilla of boats filled with heavy, heavy rocks and sent them out behind the Genoese fleet and then sank to block off any retreat. Genoese Admiral Pietro Doria now had no option except to face the newly created Venetian fleet. What's more, like in the best stories or dramatic films, that is when a Venetian reinforcement fleet returned to the lagoon from the Orient. With the escape route blocked facing the newly created Venetian fleet on the one side and blockaded by the reinforcement fleet from the other, the besiegers had indeed become the besieged. The city now also received supplies from their ally, the Duke of Ferrara, sorting out their food problem. The trap was set. All Venice had to do was spring it. When it came their turn, they did not hesitate. They managed to capture 21 enemy galleys and around 4,000 Genoese prisoners, as well as 2,000 Paduans. 
That being people from Padua, nothing to do with Star Wars. On the 24th of June, 1380, the attacking forces surrendered. Venice was saved. A new Genoese fleet then arrived, but could only take Pula and Trieste. The umpteenth peace between Genoa and Venice was brokered by Amadeo VI of Savoy, who gained control of the island of Tanedo, which had sparked the most recent conflict. The treaty basically showed the inability of both Venice and Genoa to dominate the Mediterranean, so the only real benefactory were the Ottoman Turks, who could continue to expand their dominion. Indeed, in the 1380s, hostilities between the Western forces on the one side, including Genoa and Venice, and the Sultanate on the other, would ignite over Alexandria in Egypt. And although they would reach a peace treaty by 1386, the hostilities would continue for decades to come for influence over the Mediterranean. As the 14th century drew to a close, Venice had seen some tough times, but had managed to survive. Despite the attempt at conservation, it had also changed in many ways. For example, one-fifth of the Greater Council, the Maggior Consiglio, had been changed, with a part of a generation of the noble families dying out. As far as the endless fight between the two maritime republics went, of Venice and Genoa, Venice would rise again to great heights. For Genoa, although they would continue to exist as a republic, it was the start of their decline starting with their submission to French influence in the 1390s. In Genoa, the defeat gave rise to factional fighting and the Doge was overthrown and replaced in 1383. In Venice, the Doge Contarini managed to oversee the peace treaty before dying on the 6th of June 1382. His successor died after only four months of plague, but the next guy along... Antonio Venier would see the most serene republic through to the new century, building up its financial and trade power and even getting back Corfu as well as other key cities in the Mediterranean. It seemed that good times were coming for Venice, the most serene republic, the Serenissima. Thank you, thank you very much for listening. Thanks also to my lovely Patreon supporters. Just a note, we've almost reached 100 Patreons, yay! So if you are thinking of helping to support the show and would like to have access to extra content, now is the perfect time to push us over that great number. So head on over to ahistoryofitaly.com or go to patreon.com slash ahistoryofitaly and become a supporter today. I'd like to thank in particular the second part of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level supporters, Kevin, Marcelo P, Mark P, Marxist-Leninist Sicilian, Mela, Mike M, Neville, Paradise, Patrizia Kappa, 
Roberta D, Rod L, Rodney N, Rudy F, Sam, Scott L, Sean M, Shelby, Stephen, and Tio 5. Thanks to the Tippy Top, Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri level supporters, Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Brandon S, David A, Peter W, Kevin O, David L, Rinat, and Sen. Thank you, thank you, one and all. I would also really like to thank and to welcome to our little band of friends, Tanya M, Dominique T, and Michus Porchus. Thank you, thank you, and welcome aboard to all three of you. Remember, if you are so inclined, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com and I'll be glad to have an exchange with you. You can also get on touch on social media. We are on Facebook at A History of Italy and on Twitter at the same handle. Once again, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, arrivederci. Venice, 1367. A new Dodge, Andrea Contarini, has been elected. Ah, oh, your most serene excellency. Congratulations. What? Congratulations on your election. You are the new Dodge. Uh, uh, no thanks. What? I'm good, thanks. I'll pass. But, pass? But, but, but... but this, this is the greatest honour of the Republic. That sounds great. I'm sure you won't have any trouble finding someone else. I'm afraid you can't refuse. Yes, I can. I just did. Now, off you go. But I'm afraid it's not that simple. If you refuse, you will have your wealth stripped and you are to go into exile. Well, that seems a bit over the top. And... You will be officially known as Andrea Stupid Face Stinky Pants Contarini. That's just rude. Well, I suppose if I must, I'll just get my hat. Ah, uh, no need, Your Excellency. I've brought you the official Dodger's hat. What on earth is that? The official Dodger's hat. I'm not wearing that. It looks like somebody stuck a willy on the back of it. I think I'd rather be stupid face stinky pants than Willy Head. This is the Golden Horn. I'm afraid it's all part of the deal. If you don't wear the hat... Yeah, I know. I'll be stripped of my wealth and exile. I'll just have to hope I get assassinated or get the plague or something. Sentire Media Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. 
and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.